Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of The Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, what'd you have for breakfast? I had numbers for breakfast. I had a double <laughs> serving because it's the midterm are coming and uh, it's time to start thinking about it, folks. It's an election year. It's January. Yeah, it's what we live for. <laughs> Get ready to rumble. And those <laughs> giggles you hear in the background are those of the one and only Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign, and she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, it's great to see you. Welcome back, as always. I'm so happy to be with you guys today. Thanks for having me, Ron. We have a banger of a show this week on today's roundup. We'll take a look at Joe Biden's first year in office and how well he's delivered on his promises. The RNC's decision to require future presidential candidates to boycott debates and the probable consequences of that. Tucker Carlson's transformation into a Russia apologist. And finally... In our segment for Politicology Plus that you don't want to miss, we will talk about Florida's new bill prohibiting public schools and private businesses from making white people feel discomfort when they teach students or train employees about discrimination. If you're not already subscribed to Politicology Plus, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get that plus segment and many more and join our community. Let's dig in. On Wednesday, President Biden spent nearly two hours answering questions from reporters during the longest news conference in presidential history, according to Yamish Alcindor. Biden defended his first year in office, saying the administration has done remarkably well, in his words, on COVID. Biden also acknowledged his administration's miscalculation on testing. He admitted they didn't ramp up the production of rapid tests during the lull last spring and early summer, which would have eased the testing shortage we're now facing. The administration did begin offering free rapid tests through a website this week, even launching a day ahead of schedule. He also acknowledged that the $2.2 trillion social spending legislation won't pass the Senate in one piece, but that he's working to pass individual parts through the Senate. He also admitted that he did not anticipate, quote, the Republicans' efforts to make sure that, quote, the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. I want to dive into the reporting and tracking of his progress, delivering on his promises. Um, but first, did you, both of you see the press conference and, uh, and, and what did you think? Jennifer Rubin gave Biden a, an A- and the press a C-. Uh, what did you make of it? Liz? Yeah, I um, look, I, I think he did a great job, especially considering the fact that he went so long. And what we know about Joe Biden is when he is long-winded, there's so much room for error. But I think he had a really significant number of great one-liners that that will stick out. I think the way that he talked about what he is up to um, 
I think was really straightforward and important, only in a way that Joe Biden can do it. I also thought it was great when he asked, you know, what would the Republican platform be now? Like he was making it political without making it, I thought, overly partisan. I think also when a president or a leader of any kind, but especially the president of the United States says, we made a mistake or we fell short here. I think when you say things like that, it's really powerful, unlike Donald Trump, right, who never in his four years admitted a single wrongdoing when he probably could have done that on the hour, every hour for all four years. So I thought he was very good, very powerful, not too many gaffes, if any, you know, maybe a little on Russia, but I thought overall um, he he did pretty well. Mike, uh, before we get into the details of, you know, what he did, what he didn't do uh, in terms of accomplishments, which I'll, I'll summarize, did you watch the press conference and what did what did you what do you think about what Liz just said? Because we have this uh, culture in at least Republican politics of never admitting that you're wrong, never apologizing. Right? Biden did that, and I wonder if you think it is going to work for him. I think it, I did one. Well, I did watch. I watched some of it. It was long, right? And I did. I uh, was you know kind of following along on Twitter to see what that small you know insular world of, of, uh, of extremism on both sides was saying about it, just to kind of get the feedback and see what reporters were saying about it. Uh, I, I think Liz is right. It was very classic Joe Biden. I mean, this is, this is, this was Joe Biden's, you know, press conference, uh, through and through. Um, and I think that there is a, a, a breath of fresh air. Let's, let's, let's take a moment and acknowledge how normal this was. The criticisms that we're talking about, are in retrospect not that significant and it is kind of nice to look back and what, what criticisms i am going to offer and there are a couple of them are within the realm of the normal spectrum of what you would expect of the president of the united states and i i don't think that we can get past that and pretend like that's not a very significant development and very calming in some ways and i think calming is a big part of what the, the biden pre- presidency is about now having said that uh, the, the White House is already cleaning up some of this stuff, especially as it related to his response about the legitimacy of the election if the Voting Rights Act bill was not passed. That's a significant problem, okay? And he, it wasn't like just a slip of the tongue. It was something that he was doubling down on and speaking to, and Saki had to come out and, and you know, kind of clean up on aisle democracy, if you were. Mm. It's, not, it's not a good look, okay? It's not. And, and it, it does give you, I think, a look under the hood on where this administration, and frankly, the Democratic Party is thinking about this, and I'm not suggesting that it's wrong. I'm just suggesting that it is a a window into the mind of where the administration is at, and that does give me some pause and concern about tactically how they're handling things on Capitol Hill. One. Two, much more concerning was the statement about the situation in Ukraine and, and Kyiv. Um, the, the, and I'm sure they're going to try and walk back the statement about this, a minor incursion and what that means. Joe Biden doesn't hold his cards close very well at all, especially in this long form format. Um, it's, it's, I, I think that there were probably a lot of very, very nervous, um, politicians and diplomats and people in Ukraine and in NATO and, um, you know, in, in Eastern Europe, talking about, you know, we'll, 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 the minor incursion comment it was particularly 
horrifying, and I'm not being, it's not hyperbole. If, you, if you're following some of the great minds, including Molly McHugh and John Seifer, I know are friends of the show and have been on, this is not a good sign of, there's no, there's no good way to spin this. This is not a good message to send to Putin. It is not a good message to send to our allies. And it is a uh, time when the president of the United States is being tested on the international stage and he's not doing well. We have to be honest about that. Okay. I know, you know, some, I'm sure I'm gonna get a ton of hate mail and that's okay. Come at me with it. But the truth of the matter is, this is he is not Joe Biden is not demonstrating a strength in competency on the world stage, especially on the heels of Afghanistan. We need to have a stronger, more mighty foreign policy because the, the we are there are aggressors on the world stage that will continue to challenge this president. Yeah, specifically on the the conflict uh, between Ukraine and Russia, I would encourage everybody who's listening who wants to understand this better to listen to the episode we just dropped on Wednesday with John Seifer, who you mentioned, who spent 25, 28 years running. Uh, he ran Russia operations at CIA headquarters and knows Vladimir Putin better than anybody I know. And uh, and we spent a good amount of time talking about exactly this problem and, and the test that it poses for this administration. Uh, let me just summarize. The AP uh, on Wednesday uh, looked at Biden's progress on meeting a number of his key campaign promises. The administration has been able to reach some of their high-profile campaign goals, uh, like rescinding the Keystone XL oil pipeline uh, permit, reversing the transgender military ban, ending the travel restrictions on people from Muslim-majority countries, ending funding and stopping the building of the border wall, ending the family separation policy and creating a task force to reunite families, pausing student debt payments during the pandemic, and passing a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. Uh, many of the promises are still in progress, like providing Americans a billion home tests, providing 100 million vaccine shots, which is complete, and vaccinating 70% of the world's population by September of 2022. Not done yet. Uh, reforming the asylum system, uh, streamlining the naturalization process for green card holders, and protecting young immigrants brought to the U.S. illegally by their parents. That's all in progress. I would put them in that category. And then there are several promises that Biden has not been able to meet, which is uh, reaching a semblance of normalcy by Christmas 2021, banning new oil and gas leases on federal lands and offshore waters, rolling back the 2017 cuts to corporate taxes, raising the refugee cap to 125,000, uh, establishing a police oversight board, and rejoining the nuclear deal with Iran. None of that has happened. The AP said Biden had mostly accomplished his goal of reopening a majority of K-8 schools and keeping them open. Schools are largely back in session, but Omicron has caused more closures. Uh, looking at this summary, what's your take on whether you know Biden has successfully met his campaign promises? How effectively have they have they messaged the successes? Which is uh, a topic that's come up, you know, frequently from the from our Democratic guests uh, that that the administration has done a very poor job talking about what they've done well. Um, uh, Liz, why don't you why don't you take a look at that? And also, do you think voters care? Do you think the American public cares or knows that all of this is happening? And um, right, yeah. I, that that's the whole point. Um, I was talking with my folks about it, and I was asking the question. I said, if you had to give the first year in office a grade, you know, what what grade would you give it? And after some discussion, I said, look, I would give it um, a C plus. 
And the reason I would give it a C plus kind of right in the middle there is because it doesn't matter how good of a job you do if people don't feel it or know about it, right? It's all about the messaging to voters. It's all about what people are seeing in their pockets and their wallets at home in their bank accounts, you know, what they're noticing on a day-to-day basis. And so the list that you read of everything, every promise that he has been able to keep a, I don't know how effectively that's been marketed, which Biden attributes, I believe, to not getting out into the community enough. Um, he talked about that a little bit yesterday, saying, you know, I know that we need to get out there, but we are, you know, I, I guess in the height of this global pandemic still. Um, and, you know, if you're not messaging it, sometimes the question is, what what good does it do? So here's some other stats, and I wrote them down because I also think it's important for all of the listeners on the show to to understand you know, every, everything that you're saying now. And I, I think this is a really important topic. Um, Joe Biden, in this first year of the administration, created more jobs in America than in any year in our history. I don't think that is being touted enough. It's great that it's on the White House website, but where are the surrogates and how is this being marketed and messaged? Um, you know, unemployment has dropped by, I think it's almost 6% um, since election day. 8 million jobs were lost in 2020 and more than 6 million were created in, you know, in that time since. So I just, you know, it, it's the it's the stats and it's how they're being messaged. More than 40% of children came out of poverty. I mean, there certainly is a lot to celebrate and all of those together would make me want to give the administration a B plus, but you can't do that if people don't know about it or feel it or, you know what I mean? I mean, we talk about what the voters understand and know in their core and if they don't know and understand these things, I mean, I think this red wave that we can all anticipate is going to be sincerely significant. Yeah. I mean, from where I sit, which is inside the Beltway in yeah. Washington, D.C., there's a whole hell of a lot of celebrating going on among Democrats about all yeah. the stuff that they've gotten done, right? Yeah, they're pissed about the filibuster now. They're pissed they're not going to get it some other. But but there's still this idea among Democrats that people know and care that this president has done great things. Yeah. And well, yeah. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say, even something that they're touting now about getting the free COVID test to, to folks, you know, I, I believe at the beginning it was supposed to be four tests per person. You know, that would be about 1.5 billion tests they would need to order. And they were already talking about the 1 billion number. But then when you went to go register, it's four per household. If you have three children, not everybody in your house can have one, let alone if someone has COVID, then no one else is going to get the test. So while I think the rollout will be seen, you know, like you're saying, Democrats in the Beltway are very excited. Um, just because a website worked, <laughs> I don't think that's cause for celebration. And also the post office is still not going to get these out to folks for seven to 12 days, you know? And um, there are just so many other services and platforms that exist right now in our country that can more quickly get tests out. And so for the White House to partner with USPS instead of, say, like a GoPuff or one of these other entities to say, let's get these to people in 30 minutes instead of two weeks, while they might be applauding this you know, rollout of a functioning website that can get four tests per household in two weeks. Like if you think about it, if they just asked for help from other people not stuck in the beltway in this, you know, in the bubble. Um, there are just so many other solutions that are right at their fingertips that I hope as we are 
you know, lurching toward the midterm election, that they will continue to get out into the community, not just to message, but to really understand what people are thinking and feeling and saying on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, especially when it comes to these tests, you know, there's there's also the fact that we're and we're now at a stage in the pandemic where many of us are now having a very serious conversation about what our risk profile should look like, right. our risk tolerance should look like when it comes to uh, you know, at least the Omicron variant, which is you know extr- ex- exceedingly mild. Uh, and and the only reason many people need tests now is not because they're concerned about. Uh, the you know the the severity of getting omicron but actually because of the administrative um sort of red tape that has been put in place in in order to go places right? right your you know, your right. ability to move in and out of the country right it's it's um uh yeah i just uh, and i think more of us should be having that conversation about what our risk tolerance should should Absolutely. be now yeah. uh, and going forward uh put me in the um, you know, triple vaxxed and done category yeah. uh, with with the pandemic. That's how I feel. And now there's this phrase to describe people like me, which is vaxxed and done. And mm. uh, and I think that sentiment is spreading, oh, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, as we, as Liz put it, lurch into the midterms, uh, we're about 10 months away now. Um, based on these goals that are in progress or were broken, immigration reform, uh, increasing tests, rolling back corporate tax cuts, um, is there anything left on the table that would help Democrats at the polls? My gut says uh, no, because policy doesn't matter. Uh, but what do you think? Well, look, I'm listening intently to the discussion because it is it is really interesting uh, to hear that that Democrats, especially in the Beltway, are kind of cheering. Um, none of this is the way voter psychology works. Mm. Um, it's like infrastructure. Remember, remember infrastructure <laughs> that was going to you know change. Everybody was going to you know it was all like the the, the Republican had been saved and everything's going to be fine once we get an infrastructure bill package. Nobody remembers. It was like it a well, weeks inside later. the Bowie, it was like it was like yay, we're going to win, right? That's what Democrats are saying here. We got this done. Yeah. We're going to win. <laughs> Yeah, and it's really, a, I think, a keen insight into the, the the way Democrats approach governance different than than Republicans. First of all, they care about governance and they're interested in governing where Republicans are. So set that aside for a second. But they really believe, like, if they kind of tick off all of these 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 this checklist of things, that the voters are going to be like, oh yeah, I remember that. There was four point five billion dollars spent on bridges in South Dakota or something. Like, that's not the way that that voters work or the way voters think. You really have to look at the fundamentals of, of of any race in what we call the mood of the electorate, first and foremost. And that's really all that I'm looking at right now. And by that, what I mean is, do people believe that the country is headed in the right direction or the wrong track? Like as simply as that, as Liz was saying, how do people feel, right? And until you understand how they feel, you can't politically communicate to them. And there's there's this there's this unfortunate irony about politics, especially when you unseat an incumbent, is people are rejecting what they already have. And Joe Biden was was the perfect anti-Trump. He was this calm person who was not going to be you know scaring the hell out of the country every day on Twitter, and nobody was going to be worried about you know what he was up to, what he was doing. They're like just let's just forget about the president of the United States for a little bit and go back to our normal lives and have somebody kind of handle these things. And that's what they've done. The problem is the emotional antidote. 
Yeah, he was, it was uh, completely. Now, a year into this, because we're Americans and we're extraordinarily fickle people, we're like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Well, where's he at? Why don't they, why aren't we hearing more from the president of the United States? Right. <laughs> and so there's, it's, 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 it's absolutely unfair. Right. But it, but it is a sign of where, again, the mood of the electorate is at. So let me tell you what I'm looking at, what I'm concerned about as we head into the, the stretch here. Inflation is a big problem. And it's a bigger problem than people realize, not because of it's just inflation, but because it erodes confidence. And that word is extremely important, is how much confidence people have in this administration to tackle problems. And it's why I also think in terms of inflation um, being the biggest domestic problem, what we are seeing on the international stage is doubly troubling. Because there is no sense that there is a cohesive policy agenda that is being executed competently or confidently. The Afghanistan stuff, the withdrawal was was not good. The, what is what is appearing to happen and being developing uh, in Ukraine it does not give me confidence that the administration is working either directly with Putin the leaders in Kyiv in Ukraine, or our NATO allies to competently execute what is likely to be coming in the next few weeks, which is some sort of Russian incursion into Ukraine, a further incursion into Ukraine. That will be a major, major test of this administration. So what does that mean? It means that the average the average American, who by all statistical data points should be feeling kind of elated about where the economy is going, does not, in, again, without having confidence that somebody has their hand on the rudder and is steering the ship, right? You do. You open yourself up to all a, a million different political attacks. And so there is trouble domestically with economic numbers, and there is trouble on the foreign uh, policy front in terms of international affairs. And it feels, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, show my age here to this young group of whippersnappers. <laughs> Th- this feels like the Carter administration heading into 1980. Mm. This is where there is inflation was out of control. We had been embarrassed in the international front, and Carter, very much like Biden, was kind of trying to sell the, the, this calm reassuredness when people wanted a firm hand to say, "I've got this." This is what we're going to do. This is the direction that we're heading in. We're Americans, and we're going to be damn you know, sure about our direction and our approach, and we're going to be fine. That's what people want now. And, and he's, I don't think he's got that in him. At least, at least he hasn't demonstrated that to this point. It's why Ukraine, I think, is an opportunity. But I, I left that press conference yesterday feeling much less reassured than assured that there is a cohesive foreign policy in a very dangerous part of the world at this moment in time. And I think that's seeping into the mindset of the average American. And that lack of confidence is where you will see it more coming out in the midterms than, for example, changing horses in the middle of uh, a reelect in 2024. You know, I'm just uh, reminded that we should remind our listeners that uh, much of what we do here on this show is talk about the political consequences, not necessarily mm-hmm. the you know policy successes. We're focused on how power is moving and shifting. And Mike, I, I agree with everything you just said, and it's going to piss a lot of people off because they're going to think, well, but he's doing such a good job and Democrats deserve to win. But to echo your point, it's not fair, but it's real. Well, and yeah, and, that's, and, the and world, me, that's the world we live in. Yeah, and again, I, I think I'm very... I'm so misunderstood so oftentimes by the listeners here. I'm trying to help you out. I'm trying to save you some angry emails right now. Yeah, and I appreciate, 
Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate the angry emails. Again, th- this is not a, a, a criticism per se of the policies of of the Biden administration. I think I right. think by and large, I, I would give him a higher grade than 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 Liz would. Uh, I, I would say he's probably solidly in a B camp, even B plus. But th- that's a, that's of no consequence. Like I said, is right. is, yeah. is, is right. Democrats right. Democrats in Virginia were saying let's get the infrastructure plan done, yeah. and Republicans are talking about critical race theory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they play the games differently, and that's yes. what I'm trying to to give a sense of yeah. to to the listeners. This is what the voter is looking at, yeah. and 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 those tectonic shifts in the midterms are what is going to be driving the mood of the electorate. And that's the environment in which you have to communicate to voters on. And it's it's not looking great right now. H- having said that, right. again, I hate to, to keep going on. I believe, and I've been saying this for many months, I believe the January 6th stuff is going to be far bigger and far more impactful in the midterms than people think it is. So oh. to, to that point, Ron, if yeah. I can jump in, Go I was going to say, if we're going to leave this uh, section on a positive note, what I was going to say is um, looking at, um, I think it was Chuck Todd either yesterday or the day before he was talking about how Trump Biden voters. So you first voted for Trump, then you voted for Biden. Trump Biden voters are tired of hearing about the big lie. And they were doing all these, you know, interviews with, you know, your average voter. And they were saying they will not vote for people still pushing the big lie. So to Mike's point, I think January 6th and the big lie and, you know, stealing the election and and all of that, that's going to be, that's why I give the Biden administration a C because they still have not been able to cut through that. And it's Mm. obviously been over a year and that's going to trickle well into the midterms, I think. So Mike, I, I totally agree. But on a positive note, I do think those <laughs> Biden voters, the ones that they were able to take from voting for Trump the first time, I, I do think that that we have to believe it at face value that they're sick of hearing about the big steal and the big lie, and they want to know what the elected officials are doing to make their lives better. So I hope we get back to I issues. Lo- I love that you both are, care about me so much that you're trying to like save me from myself here. You're with, welcome. Honestly, you're welcome. we're just going to create a new email address: <laughs> squirrel at mikemadrid.com. Send all the hate mail to the squirrel. And if you don't get that joke, you should listen more often. You might remember that last week, while we were recording the roundup, news broke that the Republican National Committee will change its rules to require presidential candidates who are seeking the party's nomination to sign a pledge to not participate in any debates sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Um, And what you might not remember is that Liz actually called our attention to this story, uh, to the RNC pushing for changes to the debates last summer. Liz, here's what you said back in June. Okay, so there are two for me. I think first is that the RNC chairwoman is already calling for the Commission on Presidential Debates to change its rules in advance of the next presidential cycle. Oh, I missed this. Yes. So I just saw that this morning and I was looking at that and I said, okay, this is red flag, sirens going, alert, alert. That's already so early. Yeah. She is saying if you, um, and and I don't want to quote her wrong, so just the gist is, if you are not going to change your rules, I cannot recommend to my candidates that they attend the debates. And I think if we are seeing it this early, 
with so much other, let's use the word drama going down in Washington. I think it is her hope or maybe the Republican Party's hope that this will fly under the radar Mm. um, because you're going to see calls for reforms. It's very similar to what's happening in Texas. You're seeing calls for reforms to already handicap Democrats where they are shining and doing particularly well. Seven months ago, Liz, that was you seven months ago. Wow. So the uh, the nonprofit, in case in, in case our politicology uh, listeners didn't think that our people know what they're talking about. So the nonprofit <laughs> Commission on Presidential Debates was founded by the two parties in 1987 to make the debates a permanent part of presidential elections and uh, describes itself as nonpartisan. Republicans don't have, uh, Republicans have been complaining that the debate process favors the Democrats. And Liz, as you noted in June, RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel demanded changes on how the debates were held and wrote that voters had lost faith in the commission. Uh, The commission has privately complained that RNC leaders have conflated the primary debates with the general election debates, uh, which are the only ones the commission is involved in, according to Maggie Haberman at the New York Times. One of the proposals the RNC put forward is uh, that the commission refused to agree to was that representatives from either the RNC or DNC would need to be present at the commission's board meetings. Wow. The proposal to require candidates to boycott debates uh, is going to be voted on at the RNC winter meeting, which is coming up in February. And if the RNC does approve it, the future of the presidential debates remains pretty unclear. Um, I can't imagine them putting something like this on the docket for a vote without you know confidence that it's going to pass. Like They wouldn't be out there talking about it if they didn't think they had the votes to actually make this happen. So it looks like that is the direction it's headed. And uh, since you called this one, you lead off. What does this say to you about how the Republican Party thinks it needs to present itself to the public? And then we'll go to you, Mike. Yeah, so so I think it's I think it's two things, right? Um, you know, and I know I just mentioned this a little bit ago, but when Biden said yesterday during his presser, he said, "What would be the Republican platform now?" And I bring that up again because I think the idea of boycotting the debates is that the Republican Party is no longer a party of ideas. They cannot amp- answer simple questions because they don't have any ideas. It's really hard for Republicans now to campaign on what they stand for. So that's number one. And number two, I think they do not want to have to make their candidates answer the question, is Joe Biden the president? Is he a legitimate president? Was the election stolen? And I think if you have no ideas, you can't answer simple questions, and you don't want to have to talk about the legitimacy of the election. Look, I think Ronna McDaniel, while she is not my friend or my role model, I think she's doing what she believes is best for her party right now and where it's at. So I think it's a shrewd political move. I think they're messaging around why they're doing this is absolutely bonkers, you know, saying that it's a partisan, um, you know, committee all of a sudden. But I think it really comes down to, you know, they have no ideas. They can't answer questions. They don't want to have to answer whether or not Joe Biden's the president. Mike, there's a lot to respond to there. Outside of people who are already following the campaigns, you know, one of the things we should talk about is how effective are the presidential debates at reaching voters and what would be the impact of them no longer happening. Um, but what's your, what's your read on this and feel free to react to what Liz said. Well, I look, I think the truth of the matter is the presidential debates have, uh, in very recent times been biased against Republicans. Why? 
because they're debating facts. <laughs> and when the Republicans I was like, where is, talk he, where about is he going reality, with this line? Where, where's he going with this? <laughs> it's a great they don't, If they don't want to deal with reality and facts, you don't want your candidate out there talking about it. I mean, what this is really a sign. Look, I, I'm not. A, I'm not a big believer, and you guys heard me during the, the presidential campaign when when Trump and Biden were, were debating. I'm not a very big believer that debates make one iota of difference in the outcome of races. They just they just don't, and they haven't for many many years. But at least at a symbolic level, they demonstrate a commitment between the parties to have a discussion about what is facing the nation. Like like yes. that's what a debate is. Okay. Yes. The Republicans are now saying. We are completely walling ourselves off into our own reality. And because you don't agree with that reality, we're, we're not going to stand on the same platform and even agree to what is happening or what is facing the country. Because it's a whole range of, of ridiculousness that those candidates would have to be uh, uh, addressed with. And, and, and I, I guess, yeah, smart politics would, it would suggest that you don't want to put your candidates in that environment. That is true. But the bigger red flag, which I think Liz was talking about many months ago, is this is a sign, again, of a deterioration of, of, of democracy. And I hate to kind of use that in, in a trite, overused sense, but it's true. We are watching a political party disengage from civic discourse. We are watching half of the country saying, we are not interested in having this debate or this discussion. So we're going to pick up our marbles and we're going to take them home because they're not being played the way that we want to. Democracy literally can't work in that environment. And, and that's a big part of what is happening is rather the Republican party is not trying to be a, a loyal governing partner in the country at this moment in time. It's trying to wrest power in what it believes as a conflict between two Two views, two philosophies, and it is not, it is, has zero interest in compromise. It's a zero sum battle that it is already engaged in. It's not like a culture war is coming. Folks, we're, we're many years into this. And, and that is what we're, we're watching is, is the Republican Party saying we're not interested in, again, supporting these norms and institutions and the practical discourse of, of what we even agree on as a set of facts for this country. One quick item before I hand over the, the mic to, to, to Liz. Frank Ferenkoff is the head of the commission. Frank Ferenkoff was the, the chairman of the RNC for four years, the Republican National Committee under Ronald Reagan, which is when the, when the committee was established. It, it is a commission made up of half Republicans and half Democrats, the most establishment people that you can believe. And, and, and while that may get you know, some, some MAGA folks upset and say that those are the swamp creatures anyway, these are very legitimate people who have been involved in making sure that government and the Republican Party has worked and benefited for many, many years. So again, this is just an attempt to tear things down. It's not at all an attempt to reconcile or remedy or reform or change things to make for better civic discourse. 
Mike, I was just thinking, I think that you and I watched every debate of the 2020 cycle together. And I remember you talking about, you know, answering this question quite a bit during Lincoln Project days of our debates, you know, do they make an impact? Do they sway voters? And I think something that you've said before that we certainly saw during the first presidential debate of the 2020 cycle was a good debate. You know, if you're really discussing issues, is it swaying voters? Probably not. But a bad debate that gets the voters' attention. And if we think about that first debate of 2020, that was, you know, absolute mayhem, I think maybe the RNC is thinking, this is the new normal. So the first debate of the 2020 cycle, that's what we would anticipate for, you know, the next presidential cycle. And knowing how badly that harmed us, we can't put our candidates in that position again. And so again, I don't agree with the move. I think it is petrifying for many reasons. But, you know, if you think about it in that sense, I, I, I want to say I do understand why why they're going there, unfortunately. Okay, I have two quick comments and a question. Um, first, I just want to I want to talk about these. Uh, I want to talk about debates in general for a second from a marketer's perspective, because while uh, both of you are right, I believe that you know ultimately they don't directly impact the uh, the you know electoral outcomes. Right? They aren't they aren't actually persuading voters. But what they are good for most people don't watch debates live. They don't, but the, the the media value, the marketing value for somebody who does what I do, uh, is in the afterlife of the debates, and it's in the and it's in the five to thirty to sixty second clips of a debate that you then watch on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, everywhere else, right? And not only do is that the way most people see a debate in in bite sized segments uh, propagated by someone who has an agenda, at, which is the way campaigns work. Um, and framed in the way they want it to be framed, but they also uh, result in um, massive bumps in fundraising and money because those clips are then used to persuade people to open their wallets even more than they were before, right? Your your guy or girl says something really great on the stage, and uh, and that clip is put right in front of you, and and like you immediately want to cheer them on, right? This has a this does have a big impact in grassroots fundraising, and it and to your point, a, a good debate can do that. Um, a bad debate can also do that for the other side. So, you know, uh, uh, binders full of women, for example, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if that was out of, I can't remember if that was on a debate stage or somewhere else when Mitt Romney said that, but um, moments like that can absolutely, not just, you know, do they make your guy look terrible, right? They're embarrassing. Uh, they're not probably persuading anybody, but they are raising a ton of money. So from a marketing perspective, um, debates are, debates have value. Um that's comment number one. Comment number two, I see this withdrawal from the debate process as just another data point um, uh, leading in the direction that Mike was sort of painting for us. But if you think about these debates as being a pro forma exercise, right? Pro forma, Latin for uh, for the sake of form, right? It's a thing that we do because it because it's right and proper, right? Not because we're going to change anybody's minds. In 2016, Donald Trump began to 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 break the rules, and suddenly the party started learning that that worked. And so the lesson that it learned was we could break rules more. We should break more rules more often. Uh, and then he continued to do that in the White House, right? And now, to me, what we're seeing is the RNC really begin to embrace the idea that nothing matters, uh, and and they can and they can write their own rules, and nobody's going to stop them. And so that's. Comment number two, uh, question, 
that I have is what does this then look like in the middle of a, you know, uh, a hot summer uh, during a during a 2024 presidential cycle? Um, what does this then look like if uh, if the candidates do not believe in the process of winning the office enough to stand on the same stage together. Throughout the campaign, throughout a presidential campaign, you at least know that at least once you're going to have to stand and face your opponent and you're going to engage in, in a kind of, um, let's, let's call it, everybody remembers a duel back in the days when two men, two gentlemen, I should say, uh, who who were right and proper had a disagreement, stood back to back, I, I and took ten paces, have, and then fine. I imagine you have some I, Hamilton lovers on on this feed. I'm, just, so. I, I'm sure I'm sure we do. Yeah. But think about a debate as really a rhetorical duel. Right. That's what it is. It it there's there's honor in it, or there was originally. Um, so I wonder what this does to the entire process when the honor is removed explicitly from the process of seeking the highest office in the land in the world. I think Mike? this is a Mike Madrid question oh, if I if I okay. heard one. <laughs> that was a long wind up. I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you a Mike Madrid answer then. I'm I'm reading a book called The Age of Acrimony, which talks about uh, the state of American democracy between 1865 and 1915. And it's a time where we're coming off the heels of Lincoln Douglas debates. And there's this keen recognition that that was the only way that people were actually getting that type of information at, their, at that time, with the exception of very hyper-partisan newspapers, right? And so the, while you know, he, history doesn't repeat, it, it echoes, um, we, are, we are in a very similar time and time frame with, with one significant exception, and that is th there is no longer agreement that we need to have that type of interaction, which is really, in many ways, kind of a relic of of a past century or centuries and the way that we consume information is no longer by taking saturday off and taking a you know horse driven carriage down to the public square because this guy named abraham lincoln and stephen douglas are going to show up and debate for 3 hours and talk about the issues of the day um you, and 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 i think the answer really lies inside part of your question which is these have become entirely performative, as has most of our politics, right? Not only are there not any undecided voters out there, which is what a debate is designed to do is persuade people that you're right and make your best argument and convince people. There's nobody, there's nobody out there that was going, hmm, you know, I, I don't know if I, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Like, I just don't know. Like, I just, I want to hear more about tax policy, right? Like, that's, that's not a thing. And that hasn't been a thing, and it's increasingly not going to be a thing. And so what happens in that environment is exactly what you said. The candidates are advised to be as uh, direct and practice that silver bullet you know, um, phrase, that one zinger, uh, to, to raise money. And that's, that's you know, what Trump turned it into a circus, right? He turned it into a P.T. Barnum. And, and I think you guys remember how, Liz, uh, you know, we were watching that uh, with, with a, a group of folks with the Lincoln Project. I was, I was, I was irate watching that last debate. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't speak. I was so angry because of the debasement of a basic institution of having a conversation 
about the direction of the country for the next leader of the free world. And that is how debased the Republican Party has become. It's not even interested in that. And that's why, again, I think we have all been, all of us have been signaling for so long, we're in a new era, we're in a new environment. And sometimes having these questions about reinstituting or, or reforming institutions like the commission is trying to do to, to, to meet the needs of Arana McDaniel and the RNC is a fool's errand because they're not interested in being legitimate partners. They're not interested in governing. They're interested in tearing the institution down. And we need to change our own mindset if we're going to understand the threat that is before us. So I hope, I hope that was a good Mike Madrid that was answer. Excellent. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Let's talk about Comrade Tucker, shall we? Oh, geez. Comrade Carlson. <laughs> On Tuesday night, Tucker Carlson embraced his role as a Russian apologist, asking his listeners to think about how Vladimir Putin must feel about the U.S. relationship with Ukraine. He asked his listeners to think about how Vladimir Putin must feel about the U.S. relationship with Ukraine. Here's what he said. Why are the Russians so upset? Why are we moving towards some kind of conflict? Well, there's one reason. Over a number of different administrations, the United States government has pushed Ukraine to join NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Imagine if Mexico fell under the direct military control of China. We would see that as a threat, of course. There'd be no reason for that. Well, that's how Russia views NATO control of Ukraine. And why wouldn't they? We don't get anything out of pushing Ukraine into NATO. So why are we doing this? This comes after Carlson said NATO exists primarily to torment Vladimir Putin in December. And he said he worried about a possible NATO takeover of Ukraine. The next day, clips from Carlson's show were broadcast on Russian state TV. He's also claimed that Biden is fomenting a hot war with Russia, which fits well into the Kremlin's current narrative that the U.S. is the aggressor here, while Russia builds up troops and prepares to invade Ukraine. Again, see also the episode we just dropped uh, before this one on Wednesday for a deep dive into this um, with someone who knows Putin better than anybody else. In December, Fox put out a press release that Tucker Carlson tonight finished 2021 as the highest rated program in cable news averaging 3.2 million viewers. When you consider the wide reach that Tucker has, uh, how concerned should we be about spreading Russian propaganda on the show, on American airwaves? Liz? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the the quote about how <laughs> Carlson is saying NATO exists primarily to torment Putin. I mean, it's it, I, what I have to say. And, and he's not stupid. I, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. But everybody should know. And Lucy Caldwell can speak to this better than anybody else. Tucker Carlson is not stupid. He's not. Ignorant. That's exactly what I was going to say. He is very okay. good at his job. Oh, yeah. You're spot on. He is both smart. I mean, he's smart. He's savvy. He's he is talented. And I it it makes my skin crawl to say that because I think he is such a villain. And I think he is single-handedly poisoning the minds of voters all over this country who don't know any better. But shame on us for giving him the oxygen and platform year after year to allow him to say things like that totally un- checked, right? I mean, no one is fact-checking a single thing he says. And if they do fact-check it and see it's wrong, we still 
allow him to use his platform. He is very savvy. He's very good at his job, but his job exists to, to give a point of view that is just false. He is the king of fake news. And so when he says things like this, I mean, no one is challenging his ideals. They listen to it and say, wow, if Tucker is saying it, he, he must be right. And so very alarming, very scary, but he knows what he's doing. And, and we continue to give him the opportunity to do that work, unfortunately. Okay. So Mike, here's my very simple, the, the short version of my question to you. I think Liz is, I mean, obviously Liz is right. Uh, Tucker knows what he's doing. What is it that he knows he's doing? is my question to you. And the longer version of this is, you know, obviously we've talked about democracies needing each other now more than they ever have before. Um, and we also had a great discussion about that piece by Ann Applebaum about autocrats uh, who are now so reliant on one another. Um, at, titled The Bad Guys Are Winning, if you want to Google it, it's a great piece. Um, but as we're in this existential fight for democracy, how are you thinking about the 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 explicit now support for autocrats on American right wing news shows. Look, I have said since the um, unraveling of the NRA that what we will find in the coming years will be a horrifying, horrifying um, amount of money moving from foreign governments into nonprofits and private companies and politicians. To, to get us to where we have, have somehow slouched uh, to this point. Um, Tucker Carlson is very smart. Uh, he is so smart that what he is propagating is not any at any level rational discourse for any American engaging in a discussion about geopolitics or U.S. foreign policy. It's just, just, it's just not defensible. So you have to ask yourself the question, why is he doing it? He is not acting in the best interest of the United States of America. He is clearly propping up the support for Orban in Hungary. He's, he's clearly advocating directly with Russian talking points on Fox News for Putin. And for the position of an of an expansive and aggressive Russia, and it, this is not just happening by happenstance. This is happening for a reason, and I, I don't want to speculate too much because sometimes I check myself, like we all do, going, "Is this a really bad remake of the Manchurian Candidate? Oh right? Is this is this is this just the, the is this the Cold War shit? Has it all come back in in a way that we never could have imagined?" And I think there's a wide and growing sense that, yes, this was not some sort of small tactical effort that Putin has engaged in. This was a very broad, sweeping attempt to purchase through dollars, through resources, or through compromise, a wide, wide swath of the American political system. And it, the, the, there were so many openings in a free society, especially through moving money through politicians directly, through nonprofit organizations and advocacy organizations. Again, my opinion is the NRA that hasn't come out yet, but I'm convinced that it will. A lot of these large organizations and now private companies where you can get, let's just say hypothetically, a president of the United States 
who is entirely indebted to you for hundreds of millions of dollars to do your bidding. Uh, that's what we're looking at. And I don't think that there's too much hyperbole here. Like I said, even when I hear myself saying it, it's like a bad Cold War movie. But it's there's a hell of a lot of evidence suggesting that that is exactly the case. And I haven't heard a whole lot of people refuting it from a from a, uh, a, a, a policy agenda perspective. There is There is no credible line of thinking to suggest that that it's in the interest of the United States of America to believe that NATO is an aggressor on Russia. That, that is just absurd. There's no school of thought that believes that anywhere in the United States of America except for Fox News. So why are they doing it? <laughs> we, we won't speculate, but obviously we're going to come back to this. Yeah. It's it's an unfolding um, story, like I said. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You can go too far down the road, but you yeah. have to ask that question, and that is the first part to, yeah. to get into the answer. Is recognize that this is not a legitimate position for anybody advocating anything about U.S. foreign policy. There's no serious school of thought that is would agree with that. None anywhere. Now. That we are up to speed on a handful of the biggest stories <laughs> this week, uh, politically speaking. Let's talk about what you're watching under the radar, Liz. What do you have for us? Yeah, so for me, it was an article that actually came through this morning with the header, the DNC is torn over Biden messaging as midterms loom. And I don't want to say I will be, you know, maybe as spot on as I was with my, you know, with the former section that we just went through. But um, look, if the DNC, as the political arm of the White House, is already putting out warning signs that they are torn over Biden's messaging, I know everyone here knows how I feel about the DNC, but I believe that that calls for a change in leadership because could you ever imagine the RNC? Even when the president was Donald Trump, when we had a certified sociopath narcissist as our president, the RNC stood by him no matter what. That's what you do. The Bill Clinton famous quote, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Could you ever imagine a headline that said the RNC was torn over the messaging of the White House? It would never happen. It's a party that doesn't stand for anything, that doesn't have any ideas, but they know how to message and they know how to stand by their guy. And I think the Democrats already, now that we're in midterm election year, which is, I guess, the big story to be looking forward to, right, is what what will be unfolding over the next few months as midterm you know, election mayhem becomes even more prominent. The fact that the DNC is not touting everything that we went over when it comes to what Biden has accomplished in his first year in office, there should never be a headline saying the DNC is torn over the messaging. How about the DNC talking about all of his accomplishments? How about that for the one-year anniversary headline? That's what it should be this morning. Mm-hmm. Here's everything that our president did. And you know what? He is far better than the alternative. Like, even if they don't want to tout all of the accomplishments, which, by the way, that is quite literally what they are paid to do. It's a spin machine. Fire up the spin machine. So the fact that that was the headline I saw this morning, I said, this is something to watch that the DNC can't even say. We we not only stand by our guy, but our guy is doing a pretty fucking great job. It's something to watch. That's a, that's a, that's a bad omen. Oh yeah. Uh, Mike, I have 
a story in your honor today. Oh, all um, right. It's an homage to our conversation back in um, Sacramento. When when did we actually sit down? We aired that relatively relatively recently. Um, I can't remember if it was, it was on November. the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't remember if it was uh, in the conversation or off mic, but we were talking about climate change and uh, and you were expressing uh, a very uh, prescient concern about uh, what happens, you know, a- after we have figured out how to manipulate the Earth's temperature, who gets to control the thermostat? I think is mm-hmm. how you put it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is which is a which is a frightening thought. Mm-hmm. Here's what I want to bring to your attention, um, because I think this is going to shift the politics of not just the climate change fight, but the you know the the legislative fight, but also the broader conversation. Something called solar geoengineering. Solar geoengineering. So volcanoes emit dust and ash. Um, uh, Mount Pinatubo's eruption in 1991 cooled the Earth by. One about one degree Fahrenheit uh, for four years. Um, this is also known, solar geoengineering is also known as solar radiation management, and it would basically do the same thing, uh, but humans would do it on purpose. Um, it is enormously controversial, um, and if it works, it would raise huge questions. For example, what is that going to do to global rainfall patterns and, and weather patterns? Um and and it could change the incentive calculus, I think, for pursuing emissions reductions. Uh, and and here is here's a quote. There's a piece in the Economist that I'm cribbing from here. Um, Efforts to test the idea face fierce opposition from politicians and activists. In 2022, however, this year, folks, a group at Harvard University hopes to conduct a much delayed experiment called Scopex. It involves launching a balloon into the stratosphere with the aim of releasing. Two kilos of material, probably calcium carbonate, and then measuring how it dissipates, reacts, and scatters solar energy. So we're testing this this year. It's going to happen. And if it works, if this experiment works, uh, watch for a scramble of a fight as soon as they recognize that it's effective, if, it, if it's effective. So um, I'm going to be keeping an eye out for progress on that particular experiment. Um but uh, you can imagine how, if if we are actually successfully able to uh, change the temperature uh, ourselves, um, this is this is even bigger than the climate change fight. It results in all sorts of national security Im- uh, implications. So, uh, well spotted. Yeah. Can I, well, Sorry. can I say a couple things about that? Yeah. Go the, ahead. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll try to be brief. I'll try to be brief. Um, Look, the, the climate change issue has, uh, it's obviously a, a huge, huge concern as well it should be. Um, but in my mind, I've, I've never been as concerned about that because I do believe that as a human species, we're pretty adaptable and we will find technological solutions either to pull carbon out of the air or get to the reduction levels we need to. The bigger concern, as you articulated, is who's going to control that technology to control the atmosphere and the climate of the planet. That's where this is heading, right? It's not that climate change is, is, is of great concern. I believe we are going to solve that. I think we're going to see huge strides in the next two, three, four, five years. But it's what technology is used. Um, you can imagine if uh, the debates, or no, debates, the fights that we would have with a China or a Russia if they were trying to put all of this stuff into the atmosphere to control what the temperature looks like. That's what the that's what the discussion of the next decade is going to be. We've got a, probably a ten year run before we get there, 
But that, in my mind, is a much greater concern than actually finding a solution to the warming planet at this time is who is going to make the determination on what the planet's weather should look like in a world where we can't even agree with our own family what the temperature in the room should be, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the or danger. What the sky is. What a good point. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, in, in other words, it is, you know, the the you think the fight is bad now over figuring out how to do something. Mm-hmm. Wait until the fight for once we figured it out, yeah. right? Wait, wait until fight for control. And that's assuming there's only one technology that we develop that's able to do this, right? Can, you, can yeah. you imagine competing technologies that influence the Earth's temperature and and uh, enemy countries fighting over? That's what's coming. Oh. That's exactly right. That's, that's what's, what's coming. coming. That's the real fight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you got to look ahead? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned as we're wrapping up the redistricting process. Right, the apocalyptic, the apocalyptic scenario of kind of the Republicans drawing everybody out does not seem to be materializing. There will probably be at the end of the day about twenty marginal seats that we will effectively call swing seats for the next decade. The other, you know, ninety percent of the seats out there are going to be um, largely highly partisan and safe seats for both Democrats and Republicans. And these twenty quote unquote swing seats will determine the. Um, the uh, direction of the country um, from, from a governance perspective. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, everything. That's fair enough. So um, there's good news, bad news there, um, I think, but it's probably net better because we're not going to see, unless there's an avalanche, you know, these 40-seat pickup years that we've had since really the 94 election, some of these first-year midterms mm. have just been mm. um, bloodbaths for the party in power. It's, it's highly unlikely that we will see a whole lot of that uh, over the course of the next decade. But, you know, these very thin margins um, are going to be extremely, extremely important. So that's kind of what I'm watching. That's a really great story. As a matter of fact, I want to come back to it and flesh that out like thoroughly on, a, on our next um, Drawing Democracy episode. That's, that's, a, that's important. Let's head over to the after party. Let's go. Okay, Politicology <laughs> Plus. Before we do, where can everybody find you on the internet? Liz? I am at underscore Liz Gilbert on Twitter. Mike? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.